DiscerningHearts.com presents Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is a popular author working in the area of church history, especially patristics, the study of the early church fathers. He is executive vice president and trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, a Roman Catholic research center based in Steubenville, Ohio. He is a contributing editor of Angelus Magazine and general editor of the Reclaiming Catholic History series from Ave Maria Press. He's the author or editor of more than 50 books, Villains of the Early Church, the book on which this series is based. He has hosted 11 television series on the Eternal Word Television Network and is a frequent guest commentator on Catholic Radio. Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me back. I'm excited for the conversation. This may sound odd, but I really want to talk about the villains of the early church. Does that make me strange? (laughs) I don't think so. Boy, I've spent a lot of time researching and writing and uh, talking about the villains of the early church. I find them fascinating, and I find them to be a very important part of our story as Christians, our family story, and and also a very important part of our personal development. I mean, God allows us to be opposed sometimes by people doing very wicked things, and he does this for a reason. You know, everything that he permits, he permits for our good, and we've got to believe that. He is our Father, and the works of the villains, as terrible as they are, witness to the goodness of our Father. I'm going to just refer to something that I experienced years ago when we're about to talk about the villain of the passion as we got to know him, Judas. I was on an eight-day silent retreat, and I was with a priest from your old stomping grounds, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And he had me go through a meditation reflection on the Stations of the Cross. And the first thing he said to me, who is your Judas? And who is your Peter? Mm. And that was quite a moment for me. And just as you said, what we experience with those that we call villains, especially in Judas, when you go back and you really reflect on it, there is a depth here that, as you termed it, there is a mystery in trying to grasp and understand I think it's very easy for us to make caricatures out of the villains in any story and to reduce their motivations to just the basest things. But we have to remember that Judas was someone Jesus loved. Mm-hmm. And Judas had these qualities that really made him fit to be an apostle. So our Lord saw these things in him, and he loved these things in him. He's God, and he created these things in him. So Judas had a great purpose in life, which he perverted by acting in a villainous way. So we have to try with all our might and main to see what Jesus saw in these people, and not just see them as people with black hats who twirl the end of their mustache and laugh in that dastardly way. Even the gospel writers see him in, in a bit of a nuanced way. I mean, I, I understand the young John, who was the beloved disciple, who would see who he thought was a friend, mm-hmm. who did something that was so horrific. His description of Judas 
is more passionate in mm-hmm. its disdain, don't you think? <laughs> yes, and he was there to see it, as you point out. John is the most passionate writer of all of them. He's the one who sees things that way and conveys things that way. When we're talking about Judas, I mean, we have to be clear, there are a few Judases in mm-hmm. the gospel, and we don't want to get confused by that, do we? Right, right, right. Well, there are two apostles named Judas, all right? Now, one, Jude Thaddeus, we render as Jude because we want to make the distinction in English, and we don't want to confuse readers or hearers at Mass. But really, it's the same name. It's the name Judas. In Greek, it's the same. In Hebrew, it's the same. It's a noble name from antiquity. It's the name of the founder, patriarch, Judah, who was the great founder of this tribe in Israel. And so it was a distinguished name, and it had been borne by many throughout history. Judas Maccabeus, you know, in mm-hmm. the in the book of Maccabees, the great rebel bore the name, and, and many people did in the time of Jesus. So yes, it's a common name, and it just means from the tribe of Judah, and it's borne by two of the apostles at least. Yeah, the fact that he had a last name, I didn't realize how significant that was. I just mm-hmm. always just knew him as Judas Iscariot, but you point out, Having a last name meant you were somebody. Well, you came from a certain family, and you bore the name of that family. So, yeah, it, it's a mark of social class. Hey, he was a money guy. Hey, right, and he held the purse. You know, we, we see that he held a kind of leadership role among the apostles. So not only was he chosen to be the Twelve, but he was chosen for a special position, a position of trust among the Twelve. He would have uh, the type of death, suicide, that Potter's field. I keep going back to mystery about Judas, because it it seems as though he repents, and yet he kills himself. Yes, and, and that's something that many of the early Christians grappled with. You know, they tried to understand, they, they, they tried to psychoanalyze him, to use modern terminology and project it back on the early church. They tried to understand his motivations and what was going through his head at that time, because, hey, here is the man who betrayed the Lord. He must have loved Jesus deeply at some point, you know, and at some point he made the decision, either for reasons of greed or for reasons of disillusion, he made the decision to betray Jesus, to hand him over to enemies who wanted to destroy him. And Judas knew what they wanted to do. So he went into this with his eyes wide open. And we don't know his motivations. The gospel writers do tell us that he had problems with money. He was prone to stealing from the common purse of the apostles. And so, so yeah, that may have been his weakness, and the devil exploited that, as the devil does with all of us. He may have been a man of very high ideals, like I'm sure others of the apostles, who were hoping that Jesus was coming to overturn the Romans, to cast the Romans out so that the people of Israel could return to the land and rule it according to the law of Moses. This was the great hope. This was the great hope for the Messiah, and they believed he was the Messiah. Well, at a certain point, maybe Judas realizes that this is not what Jesus has come to do. And he becomes disillusioned, and he says, I, I, you know, I've got I've to cut my ties here, cut my losses, and maybe make a little bit of money doing it. And he does that. But he must have some kind of memory of his initial love, or maybe he comes to realize that what he's done is stupid, that, that what he's done is wrong. And then he despairs, because he thinks, either he thinks that what he's done is damnable, um, or he thinks that what he's done is unforgivable. 
that Jesus will follow through on his promises and Jesus will rise from the dead and that Jesus then will wreak vengeance upon him. That's what many of the early Christians thought, that Judas feared the return of Jesus, that Judas came to a belief that Jesus would rise on the third day and he wanted to be gone by then. So yeah, we don't know what was going on in his head as he took his own life. And we don't know that with any suicide. And so there, there were people in the ancient church who, who hoped that Judas come, came to some kind of repentance. And there were others who, who just saw him as a creature of fear, that he feared that Jesus would come looking for him. You know, it came from our Lord's own mouth, better that he had not been born. Mm. Oh, boy, that's, that's yes. pretty strong. Yes, yes. And coming from the God who created him, it really, really cuts deep. Yet, yet, in all that, Mike, if God did not love him, he would not exist. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, even with Judas, even with this arch-villain, this proto-villain uh, of, of Christianity, it seems that the, the, the Christians wanted to hold out hope for his salvation. And, he, and with every suicide, we have this hope. You know, we have the famous words of St. John Vianney, the Cory of Ars. He was um, consoling a widow once whose husband had committed suicide. And he told her, between the bridge and the water, there was God. Between the bridge and the water, there was God. We can always hold out that hope for redemption, for salvation, for repentance in the last moments of life. We don't know. And it's not ours to make those judgments. That's the thing. When I go back to that eight-day silent retreat and I was asked that question about who I felt was the Judas in my life. Mm -hmm. Spending eight days in silence, what I thought automatically at the beginning of that retreat, oh, yes, it's this person. Mm -hmm. By the time I was done, it was, oh, yeah, it was that person. But there was so much more going on. And that's, uh, I think, we just don't know what we don't know. That's right. And it's significant that the church, which has canonized uh, you know, hundreds and thousands of Christians down through history has never said definitively that any one person is in hell. Mm-hmm. So we just don't know about hell, uh, and we don't know about those judgments. If the church does not make those judgments, then then we should not either, and we should hold out hope, I believe. And uh, and we see that in the early Christian accounts of the ends of so many of the villains of the of the church. We'll return to the villains of the early church and how they made us better Christians with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today.
From a letter from St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 6. Be strengthened in the Lord in the might of his power. Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness on high. Therefore, take up the armor of God so that you may be able to resist the evil every day and stand in all things perfect. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of justice and having your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace, in all things taking up the shield of faith with which you may be able to quench all fiery darts of the most wicked one. And take for yourself the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. With all prayer and supplication, pray at all times in the Spirit, and be vigilant in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology is a nonprofit research and educational institute that promotes life-transforming scripture study in the Catholic tradition. Founded by Dr. Scott Hahn and with current Vice President Mike Aquilina, the center serves clergy and laity, students and scholars with research and study tools from books and publications to multimedia and online programming. The St. Paul Center welcomes you to their free online studies. Whether you're studying scripture for the first time looking to take your studies to a higher level, or whether you're ready for advanced training, you've come to the right place. In addition, for each track of study, they recommend books that will enhance your study in prayer and build your library of essential works in biblical theology and spirituality. The studies are free. Just visit SalvationHistory.com to view a complete library. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Villains of the Early Church, and how they made us better Christians with Mike Aquilina. Now, Mike, what's the deal with the Gospel of Judas? I mean, <laughs> the, the, the cable networks seem to think that that's very important for us to know. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's kind of funny and kind of silly, and it was at the time to people who, who knew a, even a little bit about early Christianity, because we've known about the Gospel of Judas all along. We had not possessed a copy of it, but St. Irenaeus talks about it at length in his book Against the Heresies. And he says that there was a Gnostic sect that turned everything upside down. 
made Judas into the hero of the Gospels. Judas was the one enlightened apostle among the twelve. And so everything is turned topsy-turvy in the Gospel of Judas. Irenaeus points this out, and Irenaeus, of course, on behalf of the church, condemns this. And he shows the doctrine to be silly and contrary to the apostolic tradition. So we've known about the Gospel of Judas all this time. What happened, though, was that a few years back, suddenly a copy of the Gospel of Judas, badly degraded, but still we knew it to be the Gospel of Judas, appeared on the antiquities market. We don't know where it came from, where it was found. We don't know much about its provenance, but it suddenly appeared and it made quite a splash. Now, of course, whenever any ancient Christian document appears, we get these breathless accounts that it will call into question everything you believe about Christianity. And it never does, you know, and, and so often these are things we've known about all along. You know, we saw this, the pattern was established back in the 1940s with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were supposed to call into question everything we believe about the origins of Christianity. And they didn't really. What they did was illuminate the origins of Christianity and vindicate the accounts of the Gospels and so many other things. And it happened again with the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library in Egypt around the same time, a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So all of these things appear in the media as in breathless accounts, as the thing that's going to threaten Christianity, and they never do. And the Gospel of Judas seemed like the great white whale of all of them, that this was going to go out there and give a different account of the events of Jesus' life and of his passion. And you know what? It was kind of uh, a letdown once the text got out there, because what we found is that the gospel of Judas didn't disappear because the church suppressed it. Mm -hmm. the the, I mean, think about it. This is the second century. The church is persecuted. The bishops are considered criminals by the Roman emperors, and the church has no power whatsoever. The church could not suppress texts. And certainly that was the case with the Gospel of Judas. But what happened was it was a dud. It was a dull read. There was no human drama whatsoever there. It was a typical Gnostic heretical account of, um, of Jesus' life and death. And, and there just was not anything worth recommending it for. And so the Gospel of Judas, what we can say is that it kind of quietly went out of print, like most books do. Mm -hmm. You know, that people don't read it because it's just not interesting. And that's what we readers found when it was rediscovered in the 21st century. It wasn't a big deal, as, as people were saying it was. It was kind of a letdown, and there wasn't much to it. It was an account of the ministry of Jesus that attempted to turn the whole thing on its head. But it just wasn't appealing. And it's interesting that even a non-believer like Adam Gopnik in The New Yorker talked about how the, uh, the canonical Gospels, the real Gospels of the New Testament, could bring him to tears. But this Gospel of Judas was just obnoxious. It presented a Jesus who just mocked his disciples, who had scorn for them, who laughed at their weaknesses. And that's not the Jesus we know. That's not the Jesus we love. That's not the Jesus who has, a, who has drawn millions and billions of believers to himself down through history. This Jesus in the Gospel of Judas is just unappealing altogether. You know, the thing about Judas, for so many people, Mike, is kind of there's something, I think, in our hearts that we want the happy ending. 
Yeah. We we want to believe that something good can come out of this for him. Yes. Yes, it was good for us. Oh, happy fault. Oh, dear. You know, yeah. I mean, in, but there's something in our hearts that just, is it hope that I'm trying to describe here? I, I think it is, and it, and it's hope for others. I mean, as we get older, you know, we look at the people in our lives, friends we've had down through the years, and maybe people who faded and people who, who died far away from our Lord, and we want to believe in the, uh, you know, the ocean depths of God's mercy. And really, Judas is the test case for us. You know, can we look at him and imagine God being merciful to him? Can we imagine Judas coming to some kind of repentance and knowing God's mercy? If we can do that, then we can imagine mercy for an awful lot of the people in our lives, maybe people for whom we still bear grudges, for example, mm-hmm. and we want to get over that. And we can, we can imagine God loving them. And if we can imagine that, then we can bring ourselves to love them in ways that are satisfying. Yeah, I think that's the, the mystery of it all. It, it's to to look at those Judases that have affected us, and we've had them on, on personal levels, we had them institutionally, whether it's in our secular government or maybe even in the church, Mike, mm-hmm. where we think, oh my gosh, what they've done is so horrific. Yes. Yet, if we follow our Lord's example, we ask the Father for mercy, right? Yes, yes. I think that that kind of rage against people who have hurt us it doesn't it doesn't destroy them it destroys us and it's the thing that probably we need to heal the most we all have a bit of it you know we've all been wronged and especially you know if you try to do something good in life often you'll be wronged exactly for that you know people will look at what you're doing and be jealous of it or they'll misunderstand it or misconstrue it or despise it and they'll try to stop you and you'll encounter that kind of hatred really if you return hatred for hatred, it will destroy you. So what we like to do is just forget about it and, and put it away. But that doesn't quite work because memory is persistent, as Salvador Dali painted. It keeps coming back to us. I've tried to work it personally is by making an effort to think about the people I've been most angry with, the people I, I feel I've been most wronged by in my life. And, and I try to remember them at Mass, at every Mass I, I, I attend during the offertory, that moment of the offering of the gifts, I place them on the altar with the gifts, and I make an effort to do that. I don't feel like doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have never in my life felt like doing it, but I do it whenever I go to Mass. And I'll tell you, it has kind of diminished the effect of the anger down through the years so that I don't feel it as intensely as I did years ago. And I think it's more than just the passing of time. I think it's the healing power of the Mass that does it. Beautifully said, Mike. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we're doing this series, because it's not just to convey information about people of the past. And that's all very a, a, a wonderful, good thing to do. But it's to learn the lessons from their lives? And where have we experienced these same kind of things and the anger that we have towards their behavior, but also to see them as people, you know, because God created them. Mm -hmm. But the choices they made 
took them down places that, you know, please, dear God, don't let us go. Yes. You know, they're cautionary tales and, and, uh, and, and they're also lessons, as you said, you know, they're, we have these stories so that we learn how to deal with these situations in our own lives. The cycle of the passion and the paschal mystery of death, resurrection, ascension and glory. I mean, this is a pattern that we want to undergo in our own lives. You know, we're going to experience betrayal. We're going to experience abandonment the way our Lord did. How do we work through that? Well, we do it the way he did. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah, I just want to encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians by Mike Aquilina. This is the the book that we're basing the series on. And in each chapter, there's going to be so much more than what we're talking about here to kind of help you to, you know, to look in those places that we need to look at and to look at those figures who are those examples. Um, I really appreciate that, Mike. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the rest of the conversation. You've been listening to Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina.